I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. start with uh, lighting a candle. Wonderful. Thank you, Carol. I know I did not sleep much last night. Full moon, eclipse, and all that, but also fireworks going off all night. My least favorite night of the year. My hope for this time is that perhaps someday we shift out of the toxic masculine celebration of setting bombs off all night long and terrorizing all living things. That is one of my prayers to the universe, but I wonder, (laughs) how did you sleep last night, Carol? Well, the the hills were alive with fireworks. I remember the first time I went to the beach and Pacific City used to have open fireworks on the beach. It was like being in a war zone. You couldn't even see there was so much smoke. And it's that pretty much that way in this neighborhood. People are, and it's not just small fireworks. It's great big thudding. And so I'm sure all of us especially because it's a full moon and an eclipse and cardinal signs, even if the bombs weren't going off, even if there wasn't this disruptive percussive noise that sets everybody's gallbladder off, which means at a time when you're supposed to be the resting the most so that your body can prepare itself deep in the dark of night to accommodate and rise to the day, your body can't really prepare itself for the morning in the way it's accustomed to. So, and, and the, the fact that we were in also in the middle of an eclipse, it, it means that Capricorn cancer, that these two polarities are extant. And so everybody's feeling polarized yeah. and we see it everywhere. We see the polarization everywhere. And there's a bit of that in, in the incantations for today, this sense of, you know, really standing between all the opposites, right? Um, well, and that, the final image, image 72, uh, is, is such a remarkable image of something trying to become its pair or its opposite. And like I said to you, it reminded me of Hilma af Klint, you know, that these incredible abstractions about duality, fields in which duality arises. Mm-hmm. We're working today with incant- the chapter Incantations and the chapter The Opening of the Egg. So it's chapters 10 and 11. This section, and I think next section that we will cover in a couple of weeks, are just an abundance of images. So we're going to try to show them. I'm trying to post them on the website a little bit more as well, but we'll try to show them for those of you who aren't here and try to describe them for our blind community members, and also for the podcast, we will see if we can translate this to audio at all. But there's quite a remarkable 
section. So Carol, do you want to start with the images or shall we start with incantations? Well, here, well, let's start with the incantations, but let me show the image that the incantations begin with because the opening incantation, I have prepared, uh, Christmas has come. The God is in the egg. I have prepared a rug for my God, an expensive red rug from the land of mourning. He shall be surrounded by the shimmer of magnificence of his eastern land. I am the mother, the simple maiden who gave birth and did not know how. I am the careful father who protected the maiden. I am the shepherd who received the message as he guarded his herd at night on the dark fields. And there's a footnote reference to the epistle of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. But this lovely image of, um, in the double truck spread, there's two images of this rug, of something that is preparing a place, preparing a, a foundation with this image of this seated figure crowned at the top and uh, surrounded by ornamentation that includes a winged figure and a snake. And at the bottom are what, what really look like tripod offerings, old, old sacrificial burners. Uh, when you're in China and you have the fortune to go into uh, not only the Buddhist temples, but especially the Taoist temples, these images all along the bottom look very much like the very large bronze structures that when you enter the temple, there are these different levels and they're all smoking, they all have incense, they all have candles, and you put in money to burn to say thank you to the ancestors as you enter to pray. And this whole image really struck me as this deep spiritual homage. And, and what we'll discover later is this is the rug on which he is bowing when the egg opens. So this is what he's prepared for the egg. And this black snake on the left, yeah. opposite the white bird on the right, and this sweet figure sitting up there meditating, just honoring yeah. it all. Let's just say that, that this, the calligraphic script that's in the center of this image and that is in the center of the other images. Again, Jung did this deep dive, 1913, 1914, and he was writing all of what was unfolding in the black books, right? In, in his original journals. This painting didn't develop. He didn't create these paintings until 1917. So just feeling the long labor of his work that he's both shifting the original visions into more of the scientific process in the Logos realm, but he's simultaneously engaging them in this art realm as well over years, over periods of years. So the second incantation goes with this image 51. I am the holy animal that stood astonished and cannot grasp the becoming of the God. I am the wise man who came from the East, suspecting the miracle from afar. And I am the egg that surrounds and nurtures the seed of the God in me. The solemn hours lengthen and my humanity is wretched and suffers torment since I am a giver of birth. Whence do you delight me, O God? He is the eternal emptiness and the eternal fullness. Nothing resembles him and he resembles everything. Eternal darkness and eternal brightness, eternal below and eternal above. Double nature in one, simple in the manifold. Meaning in absurdity, freedom in bondage. 
Subjugated when victorious, old in youth, yes and no. I'm, I was very struck as I was reading these, light of the middle way enclosed in the egg. He goes on in, in this next image. He has a footnote where he talks about the, this journey, this deep dive, the descent and the interiorization of the egg. He later analogizes it to the journey of the, the Egyptian barge of the sun and that the sun every night spends 12 hours in the underworld. Light, God, the soul itself journeys in the underworld. And at each hour, there is a, a God or a demon. There's a, a beneficence or a challenge that awaits the journey of the sun. And this particular, I was so struck by this image of this serpent. If you look at a very old image from, first of all, the Egyptians have an amazing image of the, uh, the barge, the sun. And then there is a point in the journey that is very, very similar to Jung's images in the Red Book, in which he encounters Apophis, the enemy of the, un the, enemy of the sun. So you can see this is a holy, sacred cat. And this is the snake, Apep, or Apophis here. And this is the journey of the seventh hour. And it says scarcely, so this whole idea of life being rekindled, of light being rekindled in an egg. And in the sixth hour, the corpse of the sun god and the rebirth of the light, the reunion of opposites. So in the sixth hour, halfway through the journey, the sun is beginning to, the egg, the god is beginning to reanimate itself. Then in the seventh hour, scarcely has new light been kindled by the union of the ba soul with the corpse. That is by the cuniunctio of Re and Osiris. When the powers of darkness threaten to extinguish it in this, the seventh hour of the night. No less an enemy than Apophis obstructs the sun and those it conveys. This scene would have struck terror in the hearts of the ancient Egyptians, for to them a standstill in the sun's course would have threatened to put an end to the order of the cosmos. So I'm very struck in these incantations by the analog not only the, the language of the incantations themselves, but the images that surface for Jung from the journey of the recreation of the divine in the egg for how you encounter darkness and challenges and tests on your way. Carol, thank you. I'm, I'm curious, Leonora, if we might just check in with you again as an artist here. I mean, I know we have lots of artists among us. Carol is a visual artist. Uh, I'm not myself. Um, but I'd love for Leonora and maybe others just to share, we can pull up some images if you want to describe one that you love in particular, but just again, to kind of bring some of the visuals out a bit more now that, now that we really have so many of them. So let me go back to this one. Yeah, this also reminded me of, um, of Norse myth of the tree that lives at the base of the world tree, the snake that lives at the base of the world tree, Idrigazil. But I'm curious what you think, Leonora. Well, I've always loved this one, too, and it's so strong. The use of the red in the triangle, and the triangle is such a um, stable shape, uh, a mountain, a pyramid, 
and it's it's as though this this is really the base of the whole thing and then the vitality of the snake that ornamentation and then that huge tree coming out of its mouth and then all of the what you call negative space behind all the blue the gray blue repeats all those curly snake and tree shapes you know, in an abstract way, it, the power of this of this painting has always just bored me. And the kind of the inside out, you know, the way he, he twists the snake, you see the underside, you see the underbelly, and then you see the top, you know, as it, as it uh, spirals up. And then the, the shape of the tree echoes that spiraling and that curling. It's just it's mm. incredible. I love this. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Let me show this. Let me show this next one. Here is the image on the left. I, this this one on the right, the barge sailing through the dark of night with the sea monster. I love that word nekia, N-E-K-Y-I-A, the night journey. So again, Leonora, you want to weigh in here at all? Well, just to say, you know, when you're out in the ocean, you can't see very far down into the deeps, and here it, it appears that that monster fish shape is underneath the boat and it's like that in the unconscious it's underneath and you don't know it, you, whether it's there maybe it's there maybe it isn't and then but probably it is and you know and it's this huge scary looking shape there and it looks like teeth mm -hmm. and it's and underneath you know underneath you underneath in the ocean and it, it has a similar power to that snake it's just you know different in that way it's it's mm -hmm. profound well, it's definitely the fruits of the descent. A part of what I did this week was um, I've been reading Kathleen Rain's book about William Blake. And uh, I'll just briefly read a quote from William Blake. This is in the, in the 1780s. He says, I see ever existent images seen by the imaginative eye of everyone according to the situation he holds. To different people, it appears differently as everything else does. The nature of visionary fancy or imagination is very little known. A spirit and a vision are not, as modern philosophy supposes, cloudy vapor or nothing. They are organized and minutely articulated beyond all that the mortal and perishing nature can produce. And I think about artists and reaching down into something else. Blake goes on to talk about, I'm not copying nature. I'm not imitating anything. You know, something is presenting itself through me and I, I'm, I'm open to it. I was really struck in reading this section again that, you know, just speaking of what arises, I mean, these, these experiences of what arises and the um, truth of everything that we're reading in this if we kind of keep as I know all of us are kind of remembering letting it tap into our own journey in different ways that I was reflecting on the reason that I first read the Gilgamesh myth is because I had a dream in which an old man I don't I'm actually I would need to go back and recall it because this is just coming to me again but essentially that an old man kind of jumped off a ship and dove deep into the ocean and I thought that's Gilgamesh and then out of the water emerged a younger man. Mm. And, you know, again, there was more complexity to it, but this sense both of the dive into the water and the renewal, I mean, the whole image was renewal. And when I woke up from it, of course, I knew vaguely who Gilgamesh was, but I really, I don't have much of a myth background, unfortunately, at all, to my detriment. So I had to go learn about it. I took it to my analyst at the time and 
honestly, not a lot came from that. So then I started learning from it. But but within two weeks or something, I saw that there was a course listed that sort of just emerged synchronistically teaching Gilgamesh. And it's like, oh, okay, perfect. This beautiful synchronicity. And I started studying that. And that then led me pretty quickly into teaching courses on Jung at the same institution and teaching uh, Campbell and the Red Book and all these other things. But what was phenomenal for me is to feel this kind of my own sense of death and renewal, that something was getting really old inside of my own understanding of the material. And I think it was really, for me, the beginning of the Salome Institute in many respects of something wasn't working in what I was studying. And so Gilgamesh emerged in my dream as this kind of old king that was you know, dropped into the water and, and a new younger prince emerged. I mean, on a stallion. I think this young man came out of a stallion out of the ocean, you know, on a stallion out of the ocean. So for me then, when I read all this, Jung's work with Gilgamesh and Isdubar, this, this kind of relation between the two, and he's speaking about this same quality of self-renewal throughout it, it just strikes me very personally in reflecting back on, again, the archetypal nature of all these images. Uh, and of course, I reflect on it from a gendered perspective as well, because a huge part of this for me is navigating these gendered components and how they relate to each of us. Um, not just, again, abstractly, but I think it helps us understand ourselves in really deep ways if we can reclaim what those different projections are or what those different archetypes are. Uh, so... I don't think for me that those images were my own God. In fact, the more I've worked with this, I think my own God image that a lot of this has led to is a female maiden image. And Jung's notion in the scientific breakdown of this, and again, I, I really honor that gender is a profoundly fluid thing. So I, I believe this is an extremely individual experience. And it's the reason that I have sort of obsessed with it and dragged a lot of Salome students in the last several years through this kind of breakdown of gender in Jung's work, um, because we all have different gender identities and they transform, I think, as well over time. Um, but that I think for me, those images, the older man and the younger man were more of my animus nature. They were more of my willpower and my capacity to create things nature. And that led then to the emergence of images of a younger sort of maiden God. And so for Jung, he, he did it the opposite. You know, there was a young female soul that kind of guided things and he, and he arrived at the male God. And really the more that I have kind of tried to break this down from its roots, I think I'm kind of at the moment back to feeling what Jung's conclusion was, which is in fact, for me as a female identified person, my journey was through this masculine, this male animus figure to, to an encounter with a feminine God who, you know, for me is the Salome essence. And, and, you know, again, so then we're kind of full circle into Jung's own work. But so just feeling that again, deeply for me, this, this quality of renewal in this, in this section. Well, and it's, it's the journey. I, you know, I, I, I do want to show this. I found this as I was looking at what is called the Anduat, which is the Egyptian journey of the sun through the 12 hours of night. Here's the, the sun and the, and the barge that's going to carry it through the night. And it's going to encounter these 12 different deities and demons. And there's a, there's a prayer for every stage. There's an action for every stage. And that it involves a descent and in a way a collapse. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the dissolution or the, the surrender, the surrender to the dark, the surrender to the deep. 
one of the things that this took me back to the the 12 hours of night the 12 gods the 12 stages of not of transformation but of engagement of the light and the dark i went back to the wonderful book the lament of the dead which is a conversation between james hillman and sham dasani where they're talking about how the red book is it's not typology and it's not psychology and it's not what they call second level abstraction that even though the images Jung's images followed later from the experience of the journey itself it's the journey unmediated or cast into typology or some kind of working hypothesis it was the journey itself mm-hmm. and so what you're describing the dream and the descent the thing that's so striking about the idea of the descent to the dead that our life is dependent on everything that's gone before us and it speaks through us if we'll listen or if we'll attend and we aren't the first and we won't be the last to make this journey it's so alive all the time it's so alive right now Oof. here let's read the last incantation we asked earth we asked heaven on page 303 we asked the sea we asked the wind we asked the fire We looked for you with all the peoples we looked for you with all the kings we looked for you with all the wise we looked for you in our own heads and hearts and we found you in the egg I have slain a precious human sacrifice for you a youth and old man I have cut my skin with a knife I have sprinkled your altar with my own blood I have banished my father and mother so that you can live with me I have turned my night into day and went about at midday like a sleepwalker. I have overthrown all the gods, broken the laws, eaten the impure. I have thrown down my sword and dressed in women's clothing. I shattered my firm castle and played like a child in the sand. I saw warriors form into line of battle and I destroyed my suit of armor with a hammer. I planted my field and let the fruit decay i made small everything that was great and made everything great that was small i exchanged my furthest goal for the nearest and so i am ready i love that so much i you know i don't know if this feels like a small point to other people but i think he means it quite literally that he dressed in women's clothing i don't think he i don't think he's expressing that as a as a metaphor and and I and I wonder in the black books if we won't learn a little bit more about that but again I just love that in terms of Jung's courage in his time because we know he in fact played like a child in the sand that was an important part of his development is returning to the joys of his youth of just playing with with stones and rocks by the lake and 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 the sand and this has come up a few times i mean i really wonder about jung really quite radically exploring gender in this way again that stuff just it just really strikes me i'm struck too briefly with that first incantation when he says i this is on page 299 i am the mother the simple maiden who gave birth and did not know how yeah that strikes me so deeply because i think when we don't have elders and we don't have a culture that helps us in self development the development of consciousness and the birth of consciousness it is an experience of not knowing what's going on with our bodies you know to be pregnant and not know what it is to have no 
you know, I think of the Blue Lagoon, you remember that cheesy movie? But this strikes me, you know, this young woman who's on this island, and, and I mean, I think they grew up there as children as the narrative or something, but these two, the, the young man and woman, don't know what pregnancy is. They've never experienced it before or been told it. So she, her body is changing and she gives birth and she doesn't know what this bloody, painful, terrifying ordeal is. They have no conception of what's unfolding. Now, maybe that's absurd because, you know, nature shows us what birth is. OK, but but this idea that that you don't know what's unfolding in your psychological journey when we're transforming, when something painful and terrifying and then beautiful emerges, when we don't have culture to hold that. And that's what Jung is bringing forward again is, is how do we go through this journey if culture isn't there to guide us in some way? So I just love that line. I am the mother, the simple maiden who gave birth and did not know how. And I am the careful father who protected the maiden. Yeah. Such a beautiful holding. No, and I, the reason, one of the reasons I love this image, this complex figure that's becoming, to use Leonora's word, swirling, the swirliness of it. But look at the look on it, its face as it looks at the egg. <laughs> what, what is in the egg? What has come out of this that I have prepared a place for this? And uh-oh, and oh my God. And What image number is this, Carol? This is image 61. And Leonora, you want to just as again as you what you see there, you want to describe? Well, you know, again, the power. So the the egg is the lightest light in in the whole painting, uh, with a little bit more on the monster's two eyes, which are also egg shaped. And so you have the egg and the the eyes and the teeth are all the lightest light. And so the eyes that you see with and the teeth that you eat with. And then everything else is darker than that. And then you've got the egg right in the center front foreground. It just couldn't be more prominent than the way he got it, only if he made it bigger. And then also then that sort of purple shape underneath the egg, it's, to me, it sort of suggests wings. You know, it mm -hmm. seems to ha have a holding like a nest, and then it comes up like wings. And so the whole thing is so energized. Well, we're at, now we're at the opening of the egg. Love it. <laughs> So beautiful. Okay, so Carol, what's the story here as we get to the opening of the egg? Well, let me show one more image because I was very struck by this image. I was very struck by this image that goes with the opening of the egg where he is now, he's kneeling before the egg and it says, on the evening of the third day, which was January 10th, 1914, and when you look at the horoscope, the Grand Cross is intensifying, intensifying, intensifying. The, the 12th house is deepening, opening. His body is receiving it. His belief system is collapsing. His artistry and his imagery and his heart is opening. And it says, on the evening of the third day, I kneel down on the rug and carefully open the egg. Something resembling smoke rises up from it, and suddenly Isdubar is standing before me, enormous, transformed, and complete. His limbs are whole, and I find no trace of damage on them. It's as if he had awoken from a deep sleep. And he says, mm -hmm. here we feel and hear Isdubar in his own sort of incantation. This is all italicized text. And just again, as a setup, it's this, for me, this beautiful witnessing of how the inner tr figures transform along with Jung's transformation, right? They do not stay stagnant and they are not 
without their own life and agency. There's something profound that he conveys here. So this is Isdubar speaking. Where am I? How narrow it is here. How dark, how cool. Am I in the grave? Where was I? It seemed to me as if I had been outside in the universe over and under me was an endlessly dark star glittering sky. And I was in a passion of unspeakable yearning. Streams of fire broke from my radiating body. I surged through blazing flames. I swam in a sea that wrapped me in living fires. Full of light, full of longing, full of eternity, I was ancient and perpetually renewing myself. Falling from the heights to the depths and world glowing from the depths to the heights, hovering around myself amidst glowing clouds as raining embers beating down like the foam of the surf, engulfing myself in stifling heat, embracing and rejecting myself in a boundless game. Where was I? I am completely sun. Mm. And then Jung says here, oh, Isdubar, divine one, how wonderful you are healed. And Isdubar says, healed? Was I ever sick? Who speaks of sickness? I was sun, completely sun. I am the sun. So then Jung is, is just taking this in. The empty egg is lying on the floor. You know, his God has just reemerged from this egg. Just that image alone is so tender. This sense again of the, the male figure loving and tending to this egg for the emergence, the renewal of this new image of soul and and creativity and and uh, power you know although the word power he wrestles with in this whole section because you can feel him again shifting out of the idea of power for power's sake and into a quality of generativity and love and connection he loves this egg right he's in deep relationship with this egg yeah he says on page 306 307 he who had been pressed into the core of the beginning that phrase pressed into the core of the beginning, rose up and no trace of illness could be found on him. When the God rested in the egg and awaited his beginning, my force went into him. And when he rose up radiantly, I lay on my face. He took my life with him. All my force was now in him. And then that leads into the discussion about power on page 310, 311. And he says, what remains of human nature when the God has become mature and seized all power? And I know you and Anne have been having a conversation about the definitions about, you know, form and structure and good, the, the yeah. use, the translated use of the word evil in here. So, so I'm really curious. I think evil as a word is such a profoundly abstract word. And I wrestle with it, especially within Jung's psychology. I mean, all religion, what does it really mean if we're asked to deal with our evil? There's some relationship between evil and the feminine fundamentally. So what does it mean? It's a very different meaning to me if we're talking evil as shadow or evil as the feminine that has been ignored or what that word is, you know? So I'll read this paragraph, but I asked Anne if she could help us understand the word evil a little bit. So this is 310. The God suffers when man does not accept his darkness. Consequently, men must have a suffering God so long as they suffer from evil. To suffer from evil means you still love evil and yet love it no longer. You still hope to gain something, but you do not want to look closely for fear that you might discover that you still love evil. 
The God suffers because you continue to suffer from loving evil. You do not suffer from evil because you recognize it, but because it affords you secret pleasure and because you believe it promises the pleasure of an unknown opportunity. So long as your God suffers, you have sympathy with him and with yourself. Hi, Anne. Hi there. Um, I want to say that nothing echoes that as clearly as those who watched the session yesterday with Kwame Scruggs. And also, interestingly enough, the use of the word gold, the documentary that he made looking so closely at all those young black male lives, struggling with exactly what's being talked about here. And I just want to interject with a footnote that the documentary you're referring to is Finding the Gold Within. And it was a documentary, a female filmmaker, I'm sorry, I don't remember her name, that that made it um, about the work that Kwame Scruggs does at Alchemy, Inc. And so the word that's being translated as evil, I mean, there may be some German-speaking people in this course, but it's Börsen, which really means it can be used many ways in Germany. In German, it can mean, are you angry? Are you Börsen? Are you angry with me? It can also be used to mean, you're a bad boy. You're a naughty boy. So it doesn't have that edge that the word evil has in English. For us, it has a really sinister quality. And for me, the difference between the word And as I told you, in original, it's where our word boast comes from, meaning to be puffed up, to be arrogant, to be inflated. So there were many scenes in that that very moving documentary where you could see the young black male had, he'd ended up in jail, but you could see the depth. It wasn't evil. He'd been bad, but he hadn't been evil. He wasn't evil. So there's an aspect always there about what you need is the gold hiding within that. And as I say, we don't have the exact word in English that I know of that would translate it. Because if I say evil, that's how we have been consistently looking at that. But it's not. I'm really curious for more on the idea that it's related to boast. Because I think he's exploring power so much in this section. Right. That sense of this is the old high German meaning of it, that evil was actually a form of arrogance. Do you remember the young boy who says to Kwame, my form of anger is arrogance. And he really, really embodies it. But he knows that that arrogance will destroy him just as much as if he were a being a rug that everybody could walk on. Passivity or arrogance are both going to destroy him. Mm -hmm. And so in that word bad is that sense of an inflated, an inflated energy that will self-destruct. Does it have the connotation? I think about Richard Rohr and I think about the the Franciscan discussion of of the sins. I've been um, rereading some things about the seven deadly sins with the sense of a sin being missing the mark. Very good translation of it. In in other words, the translation of the word sin, meaning really originally in Greek, to miss the mark rather Mm. than to be evil. That's my problem with the translation of the word berza as evil, is that it is a very accusatory word rather than just saying, let's start over again. You missed the mark. 
put another arrow in the you know in the bow and we'll we'll try again which is yeah. what Kwame does again and again and again with those young men so this section that begins the god suffers when man does not accept his darkness yeah again i believe it should be on page 67 in your in the facsimile edition that line to suffer from evil means yes. colon you still love evil and yet love it no longer yes that, that's absolutely brilliant. What it's really saying is, well, I never heard it so perfectly expressed as I did yesterday, and I did in that, in that film, Finding the, the Gold Within. It is to hold it, to see it, to be aware of it. You know, I think that's where we are all right now, is how, what do I do? What do I do, for example, with racism? I have to become aware of it in myself to be able to to hold any shreds of it within me to recognize yeah it isn't good it's bad but to love it sufficiently to hang in there with it enough that i can let it transform itself into that which motivates or powers my life in a direction that's not destructive mm -hmm. It's brilliant what he's seeing here. It so speaks to right now, I can't believe it. Shall we continue with just a little translation since you've got that there, Anne? You have to know it's all in, all I have is the medieval script, so we'll try. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Man stands between emptiness and fullness. If his strength combines with fullness, it becomes fully formative. There is always something good about such formation. If his strength combines with emptiness, it has a dissolving and destructive effect since emptiness can never be formed, but only strives to satisfy itself at the cost of fullness. Combined, thus human force turns emptiness into evil. And I could go on. For me, this whole section, and it goes on for some pages, it's a lot there. Uh, uh, yes, there's a lot there. And we, you could do a whole salon just on that one sentence. But as I hear that, I hear the struggle that's going on throughout the incantations, more in the incantations than in opening the egg, where he's really going back and forth between, what do I mean by emptiness? Is emptiness the void that will be there if I see it? I mean, he starts off with this, this is Christmas and the egg, but he's quoting from Luke, and God is still very much a he. He's still very much in that paradigm. And in that paradigm, emptiness is void. But as you begin to turn that and you watch him through those incantations, turning because starting off, he's got the image of an egg. He doesn't have the image of sperm. He, does, he has the image of an egg, which is so archetypally feminine and deeply feminine that the egg is going to carry him from there. Yeah. And so emptiness in itself, as is in the sentence, is going to transform from emptiness is void to emptiness is fullness. I mean, I think you're watching the whole shift taking place, the struggle back and forth and the shift taking place there. I mean, as I'm talking, I'll just tell you that one beautiful line from Taoism, which is, can you be that hen? that mother bird, can you be that hen, hatching the egg 
because your heart is always listening. Mm. I mean, it's so deeply, deeply feminine. He's getting turned from the egg is empty to the egg is full, as it were. Or the egg is turning him from empty as mm. void to empty as full. Mm. That, that's what I hear there. But Thank you, Anne, so much. Love it. Beautiful. Grateful for your insights into these pieces, and they just keep building and building. They do. I just, there's this couple paragraphs, but on, on page 312, again, for me, I'm just so drawn to the necessity that Jung goes over and over about us living our own individual lives and not subscribing to anyone else's path ever. <laughs> um, he says, I just love this line. He says, because of this, the good ones will ultimately destroy their own work and all those whom they forced into the service of their own work will become their enemies because they will have alienated them. But you will also secretly begin to, begin to hate whoever alienates you from yourself against your own wishes, even if this were in the best interest of things. Unfortunately, the good person who has bound his strength will all too easily find slaves for his service, since there are more than plenty who yearn for nothing more strongly than to be alienated from themselves under a good pretext. I'm going to read that last line again, because to me, it's just profound. There are more than plenty who yearn for nothing more strongly than to be alienated from themselves under a good pretext. So I'm so moved over and over by Jung's dive into this work, but determination that, that he not become a prophet. His whole thing was, do not make me a prophet. I do not know your way. I do not know your way. I cannot tell you your way. I can only tell you my way. And, you know, that he's discovered these signposts in different ways, the archetypal signposts of psyche. I mean, there's a lot that he leaves for us drawing this ancestral knowledge back towards us. But he's also really saying, like, don't, don't follow in my footsteps, you know? And, and if you think you're following in someone else's footsteps, doing good work, you're going to become alienated from yourself and you're going to become miserable and something is going to go awry. So we've seen that so many times and it just really moves me the way he put that there. Well, I, I'd like to read the last paragraph. Good, good. Um, starting at the bottom of 313. Mm -hmm. Thus your soul is your own self in the spiritual world. As the abode of the spirits, however, the spiritual world is also an outer world. Just as you are also not alone in the visible world, but are surrounded by objects that belong to you and obey only you, you also have thoughts that belong to you and obey only you. Just as you are surrounded in the visible world by things and beings that neither belong to you nor obey you, you are also surrounded in the spiritual world by thoughts and beings of thoughts that neither obey you nor belong to you. Just as you engender or bear your physical children and just as they grow up and separate themselves from you to live their own fate, you also produce or give birth to beings of thought which separate themselves from you and live their own lives. Just as we leave our children when we grow old and give our body back to the earth, I separate myself from my God, the sun, and sink into the emptiness of matter 
and obliterate the image of my child in me. This happens in that I accept the nature of matter and allow the force of my form to flow into emptiness. Just as I gave birth anew to the sick God through my engendering force, I henceforth animate the emptiness of matter from which the formation of eagle, evil grows. I was so, so struck by this before I read the last, because it, it strikes me as the intersection of how we bring ourselves in what I would call the Newtonian machinery of our experience, that a part of our lives are lived in matter and gravity and experience and history and a, tra- a certain kind of trajectory. You know, it's part of astrology's business, the formation of matter and, and, a, and a relationship to, t- to narrative time, to, to time as a, as a construct. But what Jung is doing and why he got interested in physics, that this work took him into conversations about physics and with the questions of quantum, were we know that there is a world that is not bound by that. And that how do we, in our experience of limitation and form, bring ourselves to all possibility? And um, I thought that this was just such an eloquent, poetic, and imagistic way for him to pose really almost like an algorithm of transformation and becoming, Mm -hmm. of how do these worlds of matter and limitation meet the world and the place of all possibility. And then he says, nature is playful and terrible. Mm -hmm. Some see the playful side and dally with it and let it sparkle. Others see the horror and cover their heads and are more dead than alive. Those are the ones that are happy to have a pretext to be in service to. Mm -hmm. The way does not lead between both, but embraces both. It is both cheerful play and cold horror. That's sort of the summary of Jung's entire psychology, I think. In Boom. That, right. <laughs> and when he says the, the way does not lead between both, yeah. but embraces both, right? He, he's, it's not about, again, for me, it's so different than a lot of Eastern meditation traditions. Again, this is just my experience of it, but he's saying embrace all of it, live, live life be deeply engaged with existence, not just trying to thread through the pleasures and the pains, you know, now, again, that's my own experience of it, but it really moves me. And then there's all these images and maybe we can show more the beginning of next week. I find where we go from here, a very strange shift because the next sections are, are quite, uh, they're quite dark again and they're, and they're different. Uh, the, the female figures return for the first time in a while and they're different. So we're, we're in for another journey after a little break. Anne, did you want to share something? Yes, I just wanted to say a couple of the most powerful images or expressions of the egg at the beginning of the 20th century, right when Jung is, is there and in Switzerland. One is Brancusi's egg. Sent you an image, I don't have it, but it's one of his purest and most beautiful sculptures, that along with the fish. Just this unbelievable egg. And the other one is Finnegan's Wake of James Joyce, which is actually based as well on the Egyptian Book of the Dead. So it starts out with his Finnegan falling from a ladder and being dead and ends up with him going through all the various 12 houses of the dead and arising at the end 
as the opening of the egg. The only reason I say that is because I think the imagery is very much present at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. A, a deep transformation is taking place, not only in Jung, and Joyce takes his daughter who has schizophrenia to Jung, not successfully, but at any rate, that it's I'm, there. I'm so profoundly struck how much artwork and writing, some of, you know, how much came out of that 1913, 1914, or Hilmoff Clint, you know, a few years earlier, there's so much happening in that. And it, you know, we'll see, but it feels to me like we're in a, a parallel, a similar space where there's just a profundity of movement and, and creation happening right now. And thank I think you we're in a different house of the dead, as Carol was taking us through. I think we're just, we're just in another house. That's all. Yes, at, at, we're at a different hour. You know, yeah. we're, we're in, in the night journey, we're at a different hour. And, and I think not only are we at a different hour, but to circle back to Satya, your observation that he's going to go someplace else. I think about the Kabbalah and about how things refract themselves down and up. And that at every level, there, are, there is the entire journey within one level that as we continue to deepen and enter it, it's like fractals that we encounter it again and we encounter it again. But in terms of now, of the, of the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths, when you look at the astrology of now, including the eclipse last night, you know, we're, 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 we are today at a place that's roughly analog to where Jung was on January 10th, 1914. We're at a crossroads and, and on a journey and we're in the depth of it. And, um, and so it helps to know who we're going to meet on this journey, you know, to, uh, to have some sense of, I, you know, you think about all of the world's great prayers of journeying to your death and of the imagery that's available, not just from other cultures or from other people, but that's available to you as you're in that process. And the thing that is stunning to me about the incantations in the, in the opening of the egg is that um, it, it, he's, it's not preconceptions. He's not dealing with preconceptions. He's dealing with, with the raw material of, of human ancestry, of, of, of cosmic ancestry. That's why the egg is just, to your point, Anne, is just such an incredible image. But I think it's why we're going to meet the darkness again. You know, there's the, the darkness within the dark, within the journey. Mm-hmm. All right, Claudia, did you want to, we're going to, so we're going to Q&A, right? And we would love your thoughts. I'm also just moved today, again, just kind of, I'm feeling schmushier today with, you know, little sleep and a lot of, a lot happening and the whole world. I'd love if people also just want to share a little bit personally, how this journey in the red book with us so far has been impacting you. And, and if you're here every week, kind of what, what are you here for? You know, just feeling what's the personal connection unfolding for you, Claudia. I was struck by the image on page 64. I don't know. I just want to bring this up where, where um, Jung is bowing to the cracked egg. And if you look down at the bottom in the ocean depths, you'll see that the solar barge, is yeah. all the way to the right at the end of its journey, you know, and it's reaching yeah. a crossroads, yeah. you know. I was very aware of that. Um, I love that. I just want to say real quickly that I felt like I needed to take a break from all this. And yeah. um, it was just too much. 
And I had to just, you know, read the New Yorker and I couldn't even read the New Yorker. You know, It's like I started doing a crossword puzzle of the diary of the, not crossword, a jigsaw puzzle of the diary of a wimpy kid. Come on, for eight-year-olds. <laughs> I mean, I just needed to, to stop. And th this morning, Hank woke me up early, and I went back to sleep for an hour and a half. And I have to just say this, because it's just still in me. I had a dream of the first one I've ever had of falling in love with a back black man. Hmm. And um, I won't go any further. It was so sweet, but I don't fall in can love I, with men. Just to leave, uh, can I just speak to that dream a little bit? Claudia, because I think alone, without any elucidation, it maybe doesn't clarify what I think you're expressing. Yeah, that's all I have to say, though. Yeah. Okay, so interrupt me. I'll just do this briefly. But, but if a white woman has a dream of falling in love with a black man, in the most, I'm going to say this in the most general terms, because each human being has different upbringings and different um, backgrounds with racial diversity in their own childhoods. This is so general. Okay, but for you to make that statement, I just want to open it up a little bit because we've been exploring a lot of the African American community that has been left out of the Jungian world. And, and, you know, I've been just sort of trying to understand how to wrestle with this a little bit now. And what I hear you expressing is you're making an Eros connection to a part of you that had been otherwise in some way sidelined or in who knows how these figures have shown up in your dreams previously. But it's a profound image if you're a, a white identified woman, a white woman having a dream of falling in love with a black man, here is how anti-racist work can happen in the unconscious and through dream work. It's a, it's a kind of a passion of mine. I really honor you bringing that to us. For you to have an Eros connection with a, an opposite figure in that way is profound because it brings it closer to you in your own psyche and withdraws those projections from black men in the world in a very different way. Now you might develop erotic projections in the external world in a way you're, you know, that's unexpected, but we're, but, but again, to kind of withdraw that because you're falling in love with an opposition within yourself. And that's so profound and beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All what else is unfolding out there? Yep. Leonora. Hi. Okay. So that, that image, uh, the abstract one before this last one that uh, Carol had on the screen of the, the, cones. Co the cones, I think that speaks to me about that wrestling with the world of matter and the world of quantum because uh, they're so dimensional. You can see that image as flat or you can see it um, three-dimensionally. See how the, the color gradations go from dark to light and so are they going up or are they going back into the distance? And then in that whole field, that gray checkerboard field, is it geometric or is it wavy? And it's both. And it's like that image, the whole painting kind of goes back and forth, two-dimensional, three-dimensional, four-dimensional. And to me, it's that uh, embracing both the material and the quantum. With with the thing about the black white the opposites the um, all all of that dynamism you know of, of what we've been experiencing um, mentally emotionally and physically uh, to me this it it speaks in this very abstract painting and I think that's what we've been doing with the red book 
and and uh, with the racial thing, I think it's hugely dimensional. When when I when I represent this concept to myself, I use the image of transparencies, you know, like levels of seeing, uh, like when you look into a plate glass window and you see your image, and then you see the images beyond it, and it kind of stacks up in layers of transparency. It, to me, this this painting of Jung suggests the dimensions like that in that same way. Really complex. Thank you, Leonora. I, I want to add on a, a bit to that in a way of the idea of becoming. Yeah. Of matter approaching possibility. The timing of arrival is one way that I think about it, that when you're in a profound process, when you're in a depth process, the temptation to surface or to go to resolution or to get it is so much a part of how we live in the spirit of the times, but that these kinds of processes have a, an, an innate integrity that as experience, form, history, and matter approach a choice point that opens itself up to all possibility, the, the temptation to grab something out of all possibility to establish it in the in the stream of matter and time is very, very tempting to just be, allow yourself to be in that moment. And I think that's really implicit in this drawing. And in the I, I don't pretend to completely understand Jung's idea of enantiodromia. I just love that word. Yeah. And, and I, how, I've drawn, how I've drawn it myself over and over again is very large drawings going like this and coming down to a point and then going out. So when I saw this drawing, it was like, well, that's kind of how it felt to me. But if you bring that down into an organic human process of discovery and arrival, this is a really beautiful distillation of it. But it also shows that there is, there's that very narrow, you know, so many poets and so many theologians talk about the narrow gate you know, the place that you get. And I really appreciate the arrival at that place and the kind of patience and self-forgiveness and forbearance it takes to not want to go through the gate and, ha and, and just reinstate the old experience. Exactly. And hold the tension, right? Be willing yeah. to hold the tension and let the, let the egg go through its process of development. This also, I just want to say this image precedes, the, the image of the cones precedes this chapter coming on hell. Some of you may have the introduction to Jungian psychology, uh, which is another name, but it's a, the 1925 seminar on analytical psychology that Jung gave. But if you have this particular version, it's a Philemon Foundation publication, page 105. I'll just read briefly. It's just a little snippet, but Jung speaks to this image of the cones. So I'm going to, again, start in the middle here. He said, Elijah had, Elijah from the Red Book. This is his interpretation. It's really a beautiful digestion of the Red Book journey for those who want to do another dive. Elijah had said that it was just the same below or above. Compare Dante's Inferno. The Gnostics express the same idea in the symbol of the reversed cones. Thus, the mountain and the crater are similar. There was mm. nothing of conscious structure in these fantasies. They were just events that happened. So I assume that Dante got his ideas from the same archetypes. I have seen these ideas very often in patients, the upper and the lower cones, things above and things below. 
And the footnote there is the reference here is to Dante's conception of the conical form of the cavity of hell with its circles mirroring and reverse the form of heaven with its spheres. There's a lot more on Salome and evil right afterwards. We'll get into that soon. Libby, hi. Hi, hi. So just, you know, to respond to your question, you know, how am I finding it? Why am I here? Mm I, um, I'm very interested in Jung. I'm very wary of Jungians. And I've often wanted to sign up for your Red Book course and just am traveling or not. During this COVID time, I decided, okay, I'm locking down. I'm going to you know, transform myself to the best of my ability for the world I cannot wait for. And I thought this would be a great conversation to join. And and here we are today. Uh, I'm an artist, and I've noticed in the past year that the formative forces want to be painted and shown in in uh, flux in all their possibility. And uh, here we are today talking about you know the intersection of the material and the energetic, the spiritual, and it's so fascinating. So. You know, I mean, every week it's been wonderful. And I don't know, I just, I feel very grateful that this conversation is happening right now. It's informing many levels. I just, it's, it means so much to feel again, because I hate it when we get too abstract, right? So I, it's just means so much to me. I think Carol, I can speak for both of us, you know, to just feel like, how is this affecting the individual lives? You know, it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful unfolding, and, and it means a lot. And and if I can just say another thing. Okay, so now this wonderful uprising of, uh, you know, Black Americans and white Americans demanding social justice, and we have an opportunity to right the wrongs of our founding, and then the way you've discussed it in the astrological way and just it's just more transformation. So it's great. Thank and you. it's why, yeah, and, and it's why everybody needs to do puzzles of a diary of a wimpy kid. You know, you know, we, with that too, Jung talks about this, you, you know, oh. from the, from the playful and the sparkly to the cold horror and the chilling. And, and boy, for me, this journey of the Red Book, this is the, the third journey, and I feel like I finally began. And the implications and the, the decisions that I've made is for myself of doing this work, of taking time off uh, from, my work, from my work and going down and in, has produced both those things, sparkly and, and horrible. Yeah. And, and the, this idea of making some space to rest and to play in the middle of this huge task that we find ourselves in. I'm reading quite a remarkable book by a Minnesota woman, Nora Murphy, sent to me by my friend Sean Nygaard in Minneapolis, an Irish woman whose family fled the potato famine and who settled in Minneapolis, outside of Minneapolis, and who talks about coming to the realization that she she's a, a colonizer and a and a dominator of the Native American culture there. And it's an extraordinary book. It's so deeply heartfelt of her 
coming to understand that of her own longing for her own story makes her more sensitive to the stories of those around her. That I, I think this great work that we're all in, the United States of America, what we thought was true, what turns out to not have been true, what, how to live, how to, first of all, be with that. This is the idea of not, you know, like the old blues singers saying, never make your move too soon. You know, like, what does it, how to be with it before you think that you can ha actually do something about it. And so I, I have a great deal of self-compassion and uh, for everyone in the room here and, and for where we are all are in this moment, because other human beings have lived through times like this. None of us alive has. And we're on the cusp of something huge. We're at the pivot of something huge. It's very, very old. And it's not like, oh, well, it'll just turn on a dime and we'll be in the new Jerusalem. It's not like that. So to be down in this work and to be kind to ourselves all transformation of consciousness, you know, we, it starts with us, right? We are the agents of change. So I think, again, just hammering this home, it's about what we're doing with our dreaming to watch. I think of dreams as x-rays often. You know, you're just seeing a slice of how the bone is healing or not healing. How shattered yeah. is, the, is the, you know, uh, forearm or is it in fact fusing back together? And so for me, that sense of fusing to fall in love in a dream you're learning something about what is what alchemy, what fusion, what coming together is happening and, and what brokenness is being healed. And I love that. So again, the, the power of this to be agents of change in our own deep inner psyches, not to then end there and to stay on a mountaintop, you know, unless that's your journey, but it's just so cool. So I just feel humbled all the time to see all of you here. It's just profoundly moving. I could um, share something now if, that, if there's time. Yes. I've just had a, a very profound experience with a swan in the last uh, three weeks. Um, and as we're talking tonight, I realized that there are some paintings to be made about this, my experience with this swan. I'm still quite teary about it, as you can tell. But, um, because he died. But he was my teacher um, during this COVID time of people connecting with nature. And um, he appeared about three or four weeks ago in a meadow outside my home, about a quarter mile away. He's just that way. <laughs> and um, he appeared at a cross crossways of creeks, northeast, southwest. So he would come and visit about twice a day. He was about, about five minutes walk from where I am. So when I saw him there, I would come out and, and uh, feed him. And uh, he wasn't flying. It was a he, not a she. I kept calling him a she until I realized he was a he. And he got to know my call as I was approaching and he would come and greet me uh, as I was approaching. And when he wasn't there, um, he had learned my call and would come back from one of the four ways creeks. And it gave me time to just sit there and take in the landscape. It's only in retrospect that I think he had a broken wing. I didn't know why he was there and why he was fly not flying. 
But last Sunday, a week ago, I was working and uh, doing my vegetable work in my garden, and I heard the ang angel's wings of the swan above me. And I always look up when I hear that because it's so magical. And it was him. And um, he flew to my garden, above my garden. And then when he saw that I saw him, he turned around and flew back into the meadow. I hadn't seen him for two days since then. And he, he had been trampled by cows during that time. And um, I'm crying because I wish I had been in tune enough to realize that he needed my help because I did see a swan in him in the sky. He looked thin and he was struggling with the, the wind. And as soon as I saw him, he then turned and then flew into the wind, uh, uh, with the wind, so that it helped him to go back into the meadow, which was his home, his temporary home. And I wish that I had been in tune enough to realize that that was the moment that I needed to put everything down and go and find him to see if he was okay. And it's the painting of him in the sky and us connecting and also the four creeks meeting and the white swan. There are a number of paintings that um, come out of it uh, in the way that the paintings that we are looking at tonight. It was, it's this evening for me in the UK. So um, Thank you, that's Lauren. how it's affecting me. <sighs> you know, Lorna, I just am, I can see tears in the room among so many people and just feeling myself. The things that I think my biggest regrets of life, and I, I, I want to own this for myself, but I just am so sympathetic of the feeling of knowing that there are injured animals that are somehow trying to get my attention. And we can, I can feel this with humans too, although I think somehow it's easier and harder with animals. I mean, we just don't have social services for anyone, you know, here there's the Audubon Society to call, but you know, they're not open. To, I mean, it's just like, there's so many complications. Why is it so hard with all of our capacity when we see an injured creature or a creature that's been injured by a human, you know, one very painful memory for me was a uh, cormorant on the, on a seashore that had swallowed a fish hook and couldn't, you know, the line was coming out of its mouth and I had no idea what to do. And I still don't in retrospect, it's one of my biggest regrets, not scooping it up or something and finding it help because it kept coming towards me seeking my help. So again, I'm just feeling so deeply if we're talking about actual connection of the universe, it's this Piscean watery quality. We are all one, every emergence, every emergent form is part of our existence. And I really am deeply touched by your experience. And I am so sorry. Again, I can feel the sorrow in the room, but I am so sorry for your loss. So profound. I'm so sorry. Others, anyone else feeling anything you want to share? I know that's a lot that just unfolded. Just honoring our collective togetherness on this planet. Um, you know, that it's not just racism, it's not just sexism, those are huge. It's not just 
classism, homelessness versus billionaires. It is, it is also human and animal, plant mm. matter, all of these things that we think we are separate from, that we've all been trained to be separate from, and we are not separate. We are not separate. Hi, Magda. Hi. I just want to, I don't know the woman's name who just spoke. Lorna. Um, Lorna. Lorna. Thank you so much. I have, I also have stories that map with that. And I, I just want to reiterate, I think, how much um, it is a part of everything that is happening now. I feel that so true um, in my bones. And Carol was talking about the, the not, not jumping out too soon. I love the ability of this group to stay with the ache of a story like that. It is the ache of knowing the evil inside us and sitting with it and staying with it. I had this feeling last night while the bombs were going off in the sky. I've had this sense of the the metaphor and I didn't even put it together until we were just talking about eggs. You know, when a chicken, I used to raise chickens and when chickens are trying to break out of the shell, you can see them struggling sometimes. And there's this real urge to try and like help them out. You know, just like I could just pick a couple pieces off and they'd be able to get out. But if you do that, they are not strong enough to survive on their own. And there is this way that it has felt like this change that is happening has been building for so long. I have, I mean, I feel like I've known it in my marrow since I was little, little, but it's, I've just been waiting for the peck to happen. And last night I was like, oh my God, this is it. Like the peck. And it's not easy. It's terrible. It's excruciating. Um, But I feel like we're pecking out of our shell. That's what I wanted to share. Oh, and I guess I wanted to say too about what this has meant to me. Oh, by the way, I'm really glad we're going into hell next week. We're not going (laughs) up. I think you just set us up perfectly for where it's the birth. It's the birthing. It's the hell. I mean, it's so what you just said. Woof. It's a setup for sure. I mean, I didn't know that. I don't, I haven't, this is my first time through. So, but naturally, right. Right. Um, And then just to speak briefly to what this has meant to me as someone who is working with people who are dealing with all of the energies that are being unleashed and how new it is for some psyches and how much chaos there is in the collective field. And someone who feels that personally very deeply and often feels really overwhelmed with all of that energy. This has been like an anchor for me, this work to be able to ground into a mystical text that has a map and the astrology as well. It has felt so um, just like a, a validation and a home for my spirit to dig in. So I'm very, very grateful. Mm, Thank you. Thank you so much. Feels like a beautiful place to end, just feeling that anchor and such a beautiful, humbling, extraordinary community we're all in. Yeah, thank you, everybody. For more, please visit salameinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. 
You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome podcast.